0: Good afternoon, we're in John's Gospel, we'll be looking in chapter 7, verses 25 to 39. Let's pray before we come to reading God's Word. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labour... For that which does not satisfy listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself yourselves in rich food seek the lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near O lord give us hearts now to receive your word and seek you with our whole hearts that we may you may be found before it is too late we ask in jesus name amen and our text comes from john 7 and we'll be going into the old testament in some detail this afternoon to get background for the sermon so follow along though as we start off by reading from john seven some of the people in verse 25 i beg your pardon some of the people of jerusalem therefore said is not this the man whom they seek to kill and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities really know that this is the christ but we know where this man comes from And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Well, we know the Old Testament, we know the stories, we've been studying them, we've been looking at them in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, and we have seen um Adam and Noah and the line of Seth, the line of um Shem, the cursed line, the line of Canaan, and we're gonna see Abraham soon, and then we're gonna see Isaac, and then we're gonna see. Jacob and then Moses who wrote it and then the battle of Jericho and then there is Goliath and then there is the lion's den. And you've learned these stories as long as you can remember. And as we look at these stories, the tabernacle, the feasts, the sacrifices, you look and you look and you look. And then in the middle of this indistinct mass of stories, you see Christ. And it is like that with this story, which is why we need to have our Bibles open so that we can see what perhaps they they did not even see in Jesus' day. Because the Lord Jesus is going to make an audacious claim, a claim that's rooted in Old Testament imagery, as he appropriates one of Israel's most precious and beloved feasts, and he puts himself right at the centre of it. There was tension building in John's Gospels. Everyone struggled to make sense of Jesus. And we have in verse 25 the introduction of a new group. We've had the disciples leave him, many of them at the end of chapter 12. Then we have the Jews, which is shorthand for the Jewish leaders who want to kill him. We have the crowds who marvel and here they will believe in him, though it is probably a superficial belief, not a saving faith. The crowds are most likely the pilgrims who've traveled in for the feast and we're introduced to a new category, some of the people of Jerusalem. These are the locals, not the pilgrims in for the feast, but those who dwell, who live in Jerusalem, and they are utterly confused. Is this the Messiah or not? Look at verse 26. And here here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's a little bit too hard to understand verse 27, but you need to understand that they're not talking about his birthplace. We see later in verses 40 and following that they understand the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They know the prophecy, the Christ will be born in the house of David in Bethlehem. So it doesn't mean that we will not know where he was born. What they mean is that they had an understanding that when the Messiah comes, he will just burst onto the scene when he is ready to do his work of salvation, throw off his, our enemies, usher in the new kingdom, and then he will appear. So they say this cannot be the Christ because some of the people here grew up with him and have known him since he was a little boy. And after all, we know his parents and his brothers and his sisters. So they have this messianic expectation, and it is not particularly rooted in the Old Testament, but they have it. So they say this can't be the Christ because we know where he is from. So the Lord Jesus, in verse 28, teaches in the temple and says, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. So they try to arrest him. It is not yet his time, so they are unsuccessful. They will try again, and we will read about that in the following verses. In verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And if you notice in this section, there are three understandings about the Messiah. First of all, they think that he will just appear out of nowhere. Two, they understand he will do signs and miracles. And three, in verse 42, which we didn't read, they understand he will come from Bethlehem. So as far as they're considering, first sign, no, not the case. Second sign, we see a lot of miracles, maybe that's the case. And when they get to the third sign, they do not understand he was actually born in Bethlehem because they see him coming from Nazareth. Some put faith in him, but as we've seen earlier in John's gospel, it's a superficial faith. It's a faith in the miracles that he is a special person, but they do not grasp what kind of Messiah he really is. And in verse 32, some more confusion spills over. The Pharisees and chief priests who normally would never get together, but a common enemy makes for strange bedfellows. Together they send for the temple officers to arrest the Lord. And then the Lord says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. And Jesus is speaking of returning to the Father, but since they do not believe in him, they do not know the Father, so they scratch their heads and they talk about the dispersion. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. They have in mind probably the Greeks who are proselytes to the Jewish religion. And of course they say more than they know because it will not be long before Jesus, through the apostles in Acts, will go to the Gentiles and bring the message of saving faith. But at this point, they don't understand any of that. They're absolutely bewildered. What does he mean by saying you will seek me? And uh, you will not find me where I, and you cannot come. So that brings us back to the feast, and that's where I want to focus on this afternoon, just here for a few moments. Jesus does something absolutely remarkable. He claims to be the fulfilment of one of their most beloved holidays. If you look, notice in verse two, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, which is what verse thirty-seven is referring to on the last day of the feast. So this is a seven-day feast with an eighth day of wrap-up and final celebration. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, is probably the seventh day, the feast of booths. And so the activity in chapter 7 has been going on for this week. And remember that he goes up in the middle of the feast in verse 14. He begins teaching in the temple. Now this is the end of the feast. He's going to teach again. He's going to put himself at the very centre of this very holy day. Not only that, he's going to claim that to come to him is the fulfillment of all that this holiday represents. Now, many of us are used to Jesus making claims, audacious claims. And we're so used to it that we don't, we don't hear this claim, how audacious it really is. Jesus has the audacity to claim that the Feast of Booths is all about him. In order to fully understand this, we need to understand what is happening in the Feast of Booths. So if you have your Bibles, just turn with me to Leviticus. And Leviticus 23 details the various feasts in the life of Israel. There was a certain rhythm. We have a rhythm of our own holidays. Christmas, New Year, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter. Then we have the May bank holiday, don't we? And then the summer bank holiday. And the same thing happened on an even more profound level for the ancient Israelites. You can just see by the headings in the Bible the various feasts of the Lord, which are introduced in verses one and two, and then in verse three you have the Sabbath, which was the foundational, the most important, the most frequent, clearly, and then you have the Passover, the Passover, one of three pilgrimage, um, one of the three pilgrimage feasts, and then in Deuteronomy sixteen, verse sixteen. We say three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. These are the three pilgrimage feasts. And as we will see, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is tied in together with this Passover feast where they remember that they rushed out of Egypt when they were set free from their bondage they did not even they did not have time to cook their bread it was unleavened bread they celebrate the Lord's deliverance we then have the first fruits which is the celebration of the incoming harvest celebrated during March or April at the beginning of the barley harvest then we have the feast of weeks in Greek it was called Pentecost the 50th the second pilgrimage festival they were to count 50 days hence Pentecost from first fruits that is the day after the sabbath when you brought the sheaf of the wave offering and then this took place at the conclusion of the barley harvest so the first fruits at the beginning then this festival of weeks would take place at the end of it in may or june then there is the festival of trumpets which is to announce the seventh month of the year It's going to be a special month with extra feasts and sacrifices you have the day of atonement leviticus 16 takes place on the 10th day of the 7th month as the priest, the high priest, once a year would enter the Holy of Holies. There would be the hand on the scapegoat who would go free into the wilderness, symbolising the people's freedom from sin and the devil and the sins being cast into the wilderness, which brings us to the Feast of Booths. So let's look at it in Leviticus 23. You see it in Verse 33. It's about the Feast of Booths. And the Lord had spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying on the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. Or it could be translated Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, which is the Hebrew word for tabernacles or tents or booths. OK, let's pick up again in verse 35. On the first day shall be a holy, holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work for seven days. You shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Verse 39, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. Verse 40: And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of the palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This gives us a summary of what would happen. Uh, they dwelt in their booths to symbolize their freedom, the leaving of Egypt. It is the third pilgrimage festival, and over time, this became the most festive. Josephus tells us the most popular of the festivals. It was the end of their holy year cycle. This wrapped up all the holidays of the year. You read in Numbers 29. More offerings were required for this festival than for the others. All told, during the seven days of the Feast of Booth, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Sukkot, there would be 70 bulls, 14 rams, 98 lambs, and on the eighth day there would be another seven lambs, one bull, one ram, one goat, a total of ten. So all told, 192 animals were sacrificed during the Feast of Booths. So you have to picture the kind of party atmosphere as all the males and often the whole family then would have to go to Jerusalem and have all these animals sacrificed by day living in tents. They would take branches of willows and palms and wave them as a rejoicing and offering before the Lord. By the time of the New Testament, there was another key element of the festival that The priest would bring water from the pool of Siloam through the water gate to the temple, where then the water would be poured out as a supplication to God. And what we know about this festival in the first century is in large part from the Old Testament and the Jewish book called the Mishnah, which is a commentary. It is, for many Jews, part of the Holy Scriptures today, a commentary on the Torah. And then you have the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Mishnah, But the Mishnah was put together by rabbis and scribes and towards the end of the 2nd century AD. So it's 150 years after the time of the Lord Jesus, but it records rabbinical sayings and rabbinical traditions from the 1st and 2nd century. And it gives us a good indication of what it might have been like. And there is an entire section in the Mishnah on the festival, the Feast of Booths. First of all, it tells them about what kind of, sukkut that you must dwell in there is instruction on the lulab and the lulab is the word for this palm this myrtle willow combination waved during the singing and we read in the mishnah it was the singing each day of the halal psalms what are the halal psalms well there's psalms 113 through 118 and why are they called the halal psalms because they begin with hallel Hall- hallelujah which means praise Jah. Praise the Yahweh, praise to Jehovah. And during the singing of the Hallel Psalms, they would wave their lulab as a sign of the ingathering of the harvest. And in the other hand, they would hold a piece of citrus fruit. So just imagine that, the men there, citrus fruit, waving their palm and myrtle willow branches and singing the Hallel Psalms. And it gives detail about the water ritual. Seven days and for each time, for each of these days, the priest would fill a golden flask with water from the pool of Siloam, bring it through the water gate, into the temple precincts. There'd be two bowls, one bowl for the ritual pouring out of wine. The other bowl would be for the libation from the pool of Siloam, which would then be poured out. And it was very important to the people, the water ritual. We read about in the Mishnah, on one occasion, the crowd began to pour out to the high priest and lifted higher, so we could see it. And the missioner said one priest accidentally poured the water on his feet and they stoned him with citrus fruits. Better than stones, I suppose. But it was an important part of the ritual. And it talks about the various sacrifices, flute playing, dancing during the festival. And on each day of the feast is this water ritual. It's a feast of booths associated with water. Which is why it's so significant what Jesus does and what Jesus says in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And for seven days they've seen is the climax of the celebration each day. The high priest walk in with a golden flask, fill it with water, walk through the water gate, pour it into the bowl so they can all see symbolizing the life and vitality, the water that was necessary to live, the water for the crops, the water that celebrates reproduction and life and strength poured out. And Jesus, after seven days of this ceremony, says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water was a sign of life, of rainfall, of Blessing. It was a pointer to the day of the Lord. In such an arid place, rain was such a blessing. It meant that they were going to eat. If you didn't get rain, you starved. They needed food. Rain meant life. Water was vitality. Jesus says, You want water, you want life, you want streams, come to me. But there is even more to it than that. With your Bible open, I want to take you to three. Old Testament texts, because I want to get the theological significance of the Feast of Booths, so you can understand what Jesus is saying and doing at the Feast of the Booths in John chapter 7. Three Old Testament texts. The first is Nehemiah 8 verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. So that's in Nehemiah 8 verse 5. I'll just give you a moment to find Nehemiah 8. And then in verse 13 of Nehemiah 8, we read that it's the feast of booths celebrated. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should pu- proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. So they had forgotten it and now they're reading the law and they are sa- said, where was this feast? We're, we, we're, we're, we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now sometime later, chapter 9, the people confess their sins later in the holy month. So turn to Nehemiah 9 and you see in verse 15 as they confess their sin. So Nehemiah 9:15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And then over to verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for your thirst. This is the only place in the Old Testament that connects all these images in one verse. You have the spirit, you have manna, you have water, and it is in connection with the Feast of Booths. So when Jesus says at the Feast of Booths, in verse 38 of John chapter 7, whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, is not reference in a particular verse rather a constellation of themes and ideas but this is chief among them that in conjunction with the feast of booths later in that month as they confess their sin there is this recognition that the spirit comes the spirit who gives manna the spirit who gives life the spirit who gives the water of life nehemiah but here's a second passage and they build they build on each other Until they're more and more explicit. Ezekiel. So you can find the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. One of the strangest books in the Bible. A prophecy in some parts. An apocalyptic book. But more than that is revealing the in-breaking of the kingdom. And it is using language and imagery that would have been familiar to the people of God. So Ezekiel 47, verse 1, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Verse 2, then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Verse 12, And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. So you have a river, you have trees, and you have um, reminded of the Book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves on the of the trees were for the healing of the nation. So this is an eschatological. Promise, the river coming out of the sides of the temple, flowing right from that very holy place in Israel's life, trees on either side. And the picture from Ezekiel is of the kingdom breaking in on the last day, the river of life coming from the temple itself. The trees are blossoming and blooming, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Water, water, water flowing out. So we've had Nehemiah. Ezekiel, one other text from Zechariah 14, which is more explicitly tied to the Feast of Booth. Zechariah 14, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer, as in winter. And in verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, and the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Verse 18 Then if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. Verse 19 This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Again, it is an eschatological word, looking to the last day and using the imagery of Israelite worship to depict the centrality of God and his throne on that day. So you might expect something about Passover or the Day of Atonement. We do not hear a lot about the Feast of Booths, but here it is because of the association of the Feast of Booths and with water. As we saw in verse 8, there was water flowing from the temple. which is picking up on the imagery we read in Ezekiel. And now we have this strange word that on the last day you will face a plague if you do not come up to the Feast of Booths. It does not matter if you're in Egypt or where you are. You must come up as God's people and celebrate this great light and water festival, lest you will be punished for not keeping the Feast of Booths. So you put all of that constellation of passages together. And you begin to see just how absolutely audacious is Jesus on this last and great day of the feast. Verse 38 of John chapter 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You want that water from the temple, that river flowing out of you? You want that life which you've been waiting for with the trees and the healing of the nations? Believe in me Come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. And they know you keep the Feast of Booths or face a plague. No matter where you are, you better come and you better celebrate that. Now, Jesus says, you want to keep the Feast of Booths. You want to keep this Feast of Tabernacles. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink. They had seen for their whole lives. And for these seven days, the priest with their golden flask, Pouring out the ceremonial water, the water of life. And Jesus says, I have better water and I can give you better life. And when you come to me, you'll be filled not just with water, but with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit had not yet been given as a gift in all of his fullness. Because Jesus had not yet returned to his Father. Verse 39. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is putting himself at the centre of their most beloved feast. Just like water from the rock and the river flowing from the temple and the water poured out at the feast of booths. Jesus says, My life will be poured into you and will flow through you if you believe in me. What is the water like in your life? Would people ever say about you that you have streams of living water? Is anyone getting wet with the Spirit from your life? If nothing is flowing out of us by way of the Spirit, might it be an indication that nothing is flowing into us by the Spirit? Jesus wants us to see that he is the fulfillment of all that they were waiting for in this beloved feast, the Feast of Booths. And not only that, he is the fulfillment of all the feasts in Leviticus 23. He is our Sabbath rest. He is living water for our pilgrimage. He is our Passover lamb. He is our scapegoat. He is the giver of the spirit's harvest. He is the trumpet blast of the presence of God. He is the first fruits of a new body and a new world to come. And he is the fulfillment of Sukkot, the feast of booths. Do you see Jesus in your Bible? Not in some clumsy way, but in the richest, deepest, most robustly theological way. What is the Bible about? (coughs) Trying to be a good person, taking care of the poor, marriage, social justice. You can find those themes in your Bible, but the Bible is about Jesus. When Jesus walked with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, he did not show them all that the Bible had to say about transforming the culture or becoming a better you. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's why I love the Old Testament and encourage you, love the Old Testament. When you read your Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, does it tell you the story of Christ? Every story, every law, every feast is about Jesus Christ. And the more you read your Bible, the more Christ will explode out of every page. Jesus says, let all who thirst come to me. John Calvin wrote, the invitation was not addressed to one or two persons only or in a low and gentle whisper. But this doctrine is proclaimed to all in such a manner that none may be ignorant of it. It is not a low and gentle whisper. It is the booming voice of Jesus Christ. If you are thirsty, come. If your life is not fully satisfied, come. If you have sin, come. If you think that there is something more to this life and the next life, come. If your life is not the way you think it should be, come. If you're tired of sinning, come. He is not only the temple. We saw that in chapter two. He is the feast and he is God's greatest end time gift. One more line from John Calvin. John Calvin said, he therefore enjoins us to come directly to himself as if he had said that he is. It is he alone who can fully satisfy the thirst of all and that all who see even the smallest alleviation of their thirst anywhere else are mistaken and labor in vain. If you're seeking for your spiritual thirst to be alleviated anywhere else but Christ, you seek in vain, you labor in vain. Your children cannot fill up the God-sized hole in your heart. Football will never do it. Getting your house renovated or a new kitchen will never do it. If anyone is thirsty, come to Jesus. You cannot be indifferent about Jesus and his claims. No one was indifferent about this Jesus. For a man like that to stand up at a time like that, in a place like that, at a feast like that, and say what he did, led half the people to say arrest him. He is a blasphemer, put him to death. And some others to wonder, might he be the one? You cannot be indifferent to this Jesus and the things that he says, in this text that is the worst thing you can do just to say another Jesus sermon you either want him killed or you want him to be worshipped you either say arrest him or you give thanks to him above all else and I pray that you may give thanks to Jesus above all else for his name's sake amen